Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support some of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this special edition, I spoke with Tom Perriello, former congressman, gubernatorial candidate, diplomat, teacher, and now executive director of the Open Society Foundation's U.S. programs. We started by talking about the upcoming elections in his home state of Virginia and what the outcomes there might tell us about the 2022 midterms. In a wide-ranging conversation, we talked about the current negotiations on Capitol Hill over President Biden's Build Back Better agenda and why Democrats have to be bold. We talked about the state of our democracy, empowering historically marginalized communities, and his personal path to public service and his goal to test different theories of change throughout his career. I hope you enjoy this discussion with the very thoughtful and thought-provoking Tom Perriello about what he calls the current breakdown or breakthrough moment for America. Congressman Perriello, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for such a show. Yeah, well, it's great to, to meet you and to uh, to have you with us. Well, there's so much going on and so much to talk about. I thought maybe we would start with uh, the timely question. We're talking not too far out before the Virginia elections, uh, your home state, of course, where you served in Congress and ran for governor yourself. Tell me what you're thinking about kind of the dynamics of the race as we head into the home stretch and, and what you think uh, we should be watching for in the final days. You know, in one way, it shows that the old adage, all politics is local, still is true, even though it's actually a good example of all politics being federal. And here's what I mean by both. It is ultimately turning into somewhat of a referendum on Trump with Youngkin being uh, having embraced Trump versus sort of a Biden agenda referendum, whereas used to be things were much more state based. But two of the biggest factors that I think are tilting the race in the Democratic direction are uh, the fact that four years ago, you saw this amazing generation of younger people run for state legislature. In the very first uh, statewide elections of the Trump era, the 2017 elections in Virginia, we saw the most diverse group of delegate candidates run. Many in the party thought the most seats that could possibly be picked up were three, four, maybe five. And in fact, 16 seats flipped. And those legislators are now sophomores about to become juniors and have built up their own political identity and base in a very diverse range of the state, geographically, demographically. And so while Democrats have tended to have a hard time turning out voters in off-year elections, you really see this foundation built uh, by this group of legislators. And the second thing is we finally got rid of 
uh, the generations of racist and offensive Jim Crow voting laws in the state at the federal legislative level. So here you have a federal Biden agenda that in many ways is resting on the fate of what happens in Virginia in terms of how people read it. And that's resting on the fact that four years ago when Trump was elected, you saw people not just look federal and not just hide in the closet, but actually go out, run for local office, run for state office, make changes, deliver results at that level. And that may well be what keeps Chair McAuliffe getting across the line, despite the historic trends that cut against Democrats in this year. Yeah, of course, all eyes are going to be on what happens on November 2nd and what that portends for the midterms. I'm curious as a Virginian, what do you tell people when they want to jump to conclusions about, you know, what happened here is what, what lessons should we should take from this nationally? Well, it's not entirely wrong. I think you saw 10 years ago, certainly that the disastrous results in Virginia portended very bad results for Democrats but also that when Virginia candidates tried to distance themselves from President Obama, thinking that was going to be a good strategy, it actually only drove the ticket further down. And then in 2010, when I was up for re-election, uh, while I lost, I performed about 10 points better than the Democrats who'd actually voted against the Obama agenda. Uh, we were one of the few House races where he came to, to campaign for us. And not only did we outperform the Democrats that ran away from the president, I think it also built some credibility that allowed me to go on and be a diplomat and help with the peace negotiations and Great Lakes of Africa and other areas. Right now, I and we have a poll on this that shows, you know, running against Trump is a winning message for Democrats, but uh, running on results in addition to that is three times more effective uh, for Democrats. So I think, honestly, one of the things that's hurt McAuliffe the most was the failure of Democrats to pass the agenda already, and that we would have seen momentum coming out of that. And the irony is, politically, the Democrats that probably would benefit the most are some of those that are standing in the way of the agenda. And those who think they can oppose the agenda and somehow get an upsurge of that, um, you can look historically and the answer is no. If you drive the, the president's numbers down 10 points and you differentiate yourself by two or three points, you've still lost, you know, seven or eight points on net. So I think that'll be the clear message will be get this agenda passed, make it bold, have a year to sell it. And also, I think this issue about getting democracy reform done. When when Republicans have to compete for votes instead of trying to rig the rules, then we're a better democracy for it. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, we're in the throes of the negotiations to try to pass the president's agenda, both the Build Back Better pieces and the infrastructure deal. You yourself took a tough vote, as you've alluded to, on the um, Obamacare Act and, um, and ultimately lost your seat, but have made no bones about the fact that you knew that that was the right thing to do and that this is different, that the votes here are different. I saw an op-ed that you did in the Washington Post, kind of for those people who want to compare your vote uh, on Obamacare versus the vote that folks are having to take now, uh, that there are differences. Tell us about that. Why is it different? And and uh, maybe you can also expand on why it's so important to get this done. So I think the number of things have changed about the political landscape. I also think President Biden learned from the experience. 
President Biden is going with a bolder plan, an earlier plan, and a plan that delivers results for people from every region, every race, uh, every class, and does so early. In fact, one of the concerning things about the current negotiations, which again goes back to this irony, which is really a nice way of spelling stupidity, of some of the vulnerable Democrats, is by cutting the bill's ticket, which nobody actually cares. Poll after poll shows that the overall ticket price is not affecting opinions. They're doing things like saying, let's make sure the child tax credit doesn't kick in until 2024, or let's say the child care, uh, the child care credit in that case, that's going to make it more affordable to get child care. Like the sooner these things kick in and the bolder they are, the better. And this is a fundamental change in our politics since the 1990s. In the 1990s, people felt like things were basically going pretty well, uh, the you know boom, boom 90s. And so a big plan seemed scary because that might shake up a good status quo. And therefore, incremental or symbolic politics, arguably, though I think not as much as people think, kind of helped with the center. Today, making a bill smaller doesn't make it more centrist. It doesn't make it more popular with the center. It just seems out of touch. And it seems most out of touch, actually, for like suburban middle class women voters who are a key constituency. And yes, that's sometimes code for white women. It's not entirely that. But the smaller you make the bill, the more convinced they are that they're not going to get it. It's just going to, they feel squeezed, right? They know that the system's rigged for the rich. They feel like, and are pretty compassionate about having programs for the poor. And they feel like they're the ones in the middle. And the Kirsten cinemas of the world are basically attacking the middle class with their, their moves, right? That everything she's doing in the bill is hurting the middle class. Uh, it's saying the middle class will pay, pay more for prescription drugs because we want to make it smaller. The middle class isn't going to get the child care credits because we want to make sure we don't tax the rich. The middle class isn't going to get the care economy benefits for their elderly parents who they have to take care of. So there's this very odd thing where this group of people who claim to want to expand the Democratic Party are cutting out the group that we most want to expand with, which is this inclusive uh, middle class. And Biden has been very clear. He wants this. He really believes this should be not just for the poorest of the poor. This should be for all American families. It's kind of a rebuilding of the social contract that if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be able to not be on the brink of poverty. And a lot of middle class families feel that. So I think today, the doing the 90s thing, which is let's take a good idea and cut it in half, doesn't make the idea better. It makes the idea seem almost sort of offensively out of touch. And I think that's what you're seeing from a lot of these obstructionist Democrats. And it's not a coincidence that they take a lot of money from corporate lobbyists and, and others on those things. So we don't, you know, I think we're moving away from this politics of right, left and center. And it's more of a politics of like, are you in touch or out of touch? And the things that show that you're in touch are a little different than what they were 20 years ago. Trump got a sort of corrupted, bastardized version of this, right? Which was like, he got that there had been this elite consensus on China and on trade uh, that the leaders of both parties had had for a number of years. And even though he had no plan to replace it with and was all over the place, he at least was like, hey, you know, I hear you. I hear you that this is not working for most Americans. Um, and I actually think he was right in many ways in the critique of China. He just had no coherence in the response and put American consumers in a really bad place. So, 
you know, I think that's where we got to be. I think we've got to be bold. We've got to be creative. And I think some of that's going to happen at the state and local level with responses, but some of that's got to be federal. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering just as you're watching this whole thing play out, you know, I think there's a lot of talk now, you know, there has been for, for decades, but you know, about Washington being broken, Washington being out of touch. I mean, do you feel like what we're seeing play out right now is just how legislation happens? And this is just part of the process? Or do you really do you think something is, is fundamentally different from when you served? Oh, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's broken in any number of ways. <laughs> let's, let's, let's look at this for a second. So one piece that has definitely changed is, that had really already changed in my time, but has now gotten even more extreme is the polarization. The irony here was, you know, when, and I had this conversation with, you know, my, my neighboring Congressman, Eric Cantor, who was the, you know, um, minority leader, minority whip, whatever he was at the time. They weren't worried that Barack Obama was going to be too radical. They were worried that Obama was going to be the kind of centrist uniter that was going to create a permanent majority. And Eric Cantor said, we're not going to let him be Mark Warner. He didn't say we're not going to let him be Che or Mao or something, right? So Eric Cantor had been in the legislature when Mark Warner came in to what had been a solidly red state. Mark Warner did everything that we say we want politicians to do. He brought both sides together, not just Republicans and Democrats, but unions and corporations. He balanced a budget deficit uh, that the previous Republican governor had set. He actually raised taxes, used it to put into infrastructure and into public education, and he made Virginia the best managed state in the country, the best state in the country to do business, the best state in the country to raise a family. And Eric Cantor's response to that was, we can never let that happen again. (laughs) So his view was, why? Because Mark Warner became untouchable politically. He created coattails that helped turn the Virginia blue probably 10 years earlier than it might have demographically. Um, And uh, Cantor knew Obama was at least capable of that. Um, Here was a guy who might unite, you know, white, black, brown community organizers with Silicon Valley, you name it. And what he felt was this is a zero sum game. And I remember saying to him during the, the stimulus debate, I was like, I don't get it. Like these are Republican policies. Like if you look at the stimulus at the time, it was a third tax cuts, uh, which Republicans supported. It was a third funding of unfunded mandates to states, which had literally been part of Newt Gingrich's contract with America. And a third, though later that got cut, um, infrastructure and um, uh, R&D, which Republicans were for. And he was like, look, that's not the point. We, we can't let this work. We can't give Obama a bipartisan victory. So that level of zero-sum politics had kicked in, but it's on steroids now, both because of social media and the corrosive effects of uh, propaganda and the algorithm stuff that we'll talk about more, but also because Donald Trump, Donald Trump's only real political innovation was after McCain lost and Romney lost, not in that order, but you know what I mean? Uh, The assumption was the Republican party had hit a limit of how much it could appeal to sort of white voters and it needed to diversify the party. And Trump said, well, what if we tried something else? What if I went even more racist? What if I went from dog whistles to bullhorns? And sadly, he was proven right. In both 16 and 20, he produced about 12 to 15 million more voters for him than McCain or Romney got. 
So there are a set of Americans out there, sadly, who will vote for that and not for something less than that. That's created a completely different political incentive structure on the Republican side. So that polarization has gotten far worse. And obviously Trump as an individual and the power he wields has, has made that worse. I think we also have a huge problem. If you take off your Democrat and Republican hat for a second, and you just think about the U.S. Senate today, a majority of the population is represented by 18 votes in the Senate today, 18 votes in the Senate. And, um, a, and a, a minority, 47% of Americans, have 82 votes in the Senate. Now, that makes no sense whatsoever. The fact that it happens to randomly correlate to D's and R's has nothing to do with representative government. If over the next 10 years, Florida and Texas went blue and New Hampshire and Vermont went red, which demographically is conceivable, your numbers skew even more absurdly in terms of that body. And part of it is because your state identity is no longer a meaningful political identity. If you say politically, I'm a Virginian, right? Like if you are a red Virginian, you mean something completely different. If you were, I've used this example before, but you know, if you lived in small town Georgia two years ago versus today, versus to Atlanta people, right? So all Georgian in their identity. But two years ago, those Atlanta voters felt more represented in the Senate by Cory Booker or Tim Kaine than they did by Purdue or Loeffler, right? Like, it wasn't relevant that they were Georgian. Like, to the extent that occasionally Georgia issues come up, you can form a house caucus of your Georgia members, right? For a base closure or coastal restoration or what have you. Today, those two Georgians feel represented but the two Georgians living in small town Georgia feel more represented by Rick Scott or Tim Scott than they do by Warnock or uh, Ossoff. So this whole notion at the founding that this meant something, we are representing Virginia in the Senate, um, but it's not actually how our politics work anymore because the breakdowns are almost entirely urban, suburban versus small town and rural. If you were designing it today, you'd probably say, well, the states already get represented by their caucuses in the House, but it's cities that should be represented in the city or some other representative mechanism. So that tension is really toxic on the body politic, both because of the inability to deliver results, and it's the inability of democracies to deliver results that tend to give fuel to authoritarians and strongmen who come in and say, only I can do this because I've got to break the system, break the rules but also to just the cynicism on all sides that they don't feel represented, right? If you're a conservative who lives in California, of which there are millions and millions, right? You don't feel represented by your state legislature, your governor, and that's the size of you know a, a medium-sized country. So I think when we think about the problems today, certainly we had some of them back in my day, only 10 years ago, but I do think the issue of the scale and intensity and speed of propaganda and misinformation, and this issue about the geographic polarization is, um, and then Trump's sort of changing of the political incentives have all really made things a lot tougher. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. I, I, I think I want to ask first about, you know, the other thing that's on steroids right now, which is the attack on democracy itself and our democratic institutions. And how do you see that playing into the narrative you just described. You're someone who's worked in human rights around the world. You've worked on democracy building. I mean, what is your, you know, what's your fear about this? And, and what do you think needs to be, needs to happen? I mean, we're at a, a serious um, 
breakdown or breakthrough moment. And I want to make sure we focus on the breakthrough as well. There are very few examples in human history of genuinely diverse, whether that's ethnicity, race, sectarianism, uh, democracies being able to sustain themselves without some form of a caste system. In other words, where you have genuinely different but absolutely equal communities inside a democracy over time. It's very rare. And essentially, the United States has had a caste system where Black people were had second-class status and either had to negotiate for terms weekly in one party or the other, initially in the Republican Party, then into the Democratic Party. But we are becoming the America that we promised all along, which was a genuinely multiracial democracy. And it's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty cool thing. And there are arguably two times in American history where that's happened. One was Reconstruction. And in Reconstruction, the response is what you actually see most of the time in human history, which is violence, a reign of terror, ethnic cleansing um, by the what was seen as the disempowered white minority in some places. You had a majority of the South Carolina legislature that was black uh, during Reconstruction. You had black leadership of cities. And there was an absolute Taliban-style ethnic cleansing of the South through lynching, uh, killings, and of course the targets were the most educated Black people, those who had taken power, those who were literate. Uh, all of those were threatened sort of top down and killed in, in far too many cases. Today's political map still reflects the torture and ethnic cleansing of the South both in terms of the actual population driving the Great Migration, but also the Jim Crow that followed that means a state like, um, I think Mississippi is 40% black and there's not a single you know, state elected official that's uh, not white and conservative. So the legacy, unfortunately on the planet is usually more might makes right or a reflection of power than the actual idea of rule of law, rule of man, rule of, you know, of law with, with majoritarian accountability that was so radical in the American founding, right? It wasn't radical enough to be uh, equal in terms of women, equal in terms of uh, outlawing human chattel slavery, much less black citizenship, but it was radical relative to its peer governments in terms of the idea that it wasn't a sovereign that could simply dictate truth. There was like a process. There was going to be a process of rule of law. And for those of us that have worked around the world, we know that that's not a, you know, a given. It's not an assumption that that's the way the world works. It's in fact not the way most of the world works. And it's something that every generation has to say, like, this is a big deal. We're going to make this happen and we're going to make it better. And I think there's no question, and this goes to the second time this happened in American history, was California in the 1990s. That's the only other time that you've seen an ethnic majority that held had a monopoly on power uh, arguably lose that power. So Reconstruction leads to violence. In 1990s, the Republicans essentially did um, a, a Trump-like move. It was called Prop 187. They ran a bunch of very anti-immigrant stuff. They briefly drove up their support from white voters, but it actually drove together a coalition of Asian-American, Muslim-American, Black-American, Latinx, 
et cetera, that to this day has continued to keep that a relatively stable democracy, whether you like the policies or not. And people are like, oh, well, of course. Well, at the time, Asian Americans were not primarily voting for the Democratic Party. A lot of Muslim Americans were not primarily voting for the Democratic Party there, and the Latinx community was split. So it was a decision of the Republicans to say, we are going to alienate and drive those groups into a pro-democracy, multiracial majority. And the demographics there and the politics and the leadership meant that that argument won out. And the hope is that this is a more, only a more violent version of that nationwide that we're going through because we're actually finally doing it. We're actually finally talking about equal citizenship under the law where it's not okay for police to shoot an unarmed black man and not expect some form of accountability for that where we're not going to actively rob black people of the right to vote because we think that some set of, you know, largely white men somewhere should be able to dictate the outcome. And we only do the voting as sort of a performative exercise to, you know, to validate that decision. Or do we actually believe in that? And the interesting thing here is if we can get the democracy reforms through, it's actually one of the greatest things you could do for the Republican Party. Because as long as the Republican Party thinks that it can win elections by rigging the rules, it will focus on rigging the rules. The second it can't rig the rules, it'll actually start appealing to more voters to win. That's the only way it has to win. And they've got some good messages. They have some messages that resonate across communities of color, some messages that resonate with young people in the best version of what that party could be or could stand for. So actually, I think that not only is democracy reform crucial for Democrats winning and for democracy surviving, but I actually think ultimately it's the best way to get back to a the kind of two-party system that is a that is a contestation of ideas in the public domain instead of a contestation of corruption and violence and ethnic hatred from one party while another is trying to cobble together that co- coalition. I think that's so fascinating. Do you think that that means that not only obviously we're talking about voting access, voting rights, um, you know, what's making its way through Congress now, but we've got other things. We've got redistricting, which essentially, you know, locks in some of this in, you know, inequity. We've got the disinformation piece you talked about a second ago. I mean, so there are other pieces. So do you feel like we have to get all of those fixed? I, I liked it. It's fascinating what you said. I think what I heard you just say is essentially as long as there's other ways to have to you know, compete on this fair plane on, on, a, on, the, on the, you know, in the arena of ideas, as long as there's other ways to do it, that's, that's what's going to happen. Do you think we've got to fix some of those pieces too, as well as just the, you know, just the, the fundamentals of our democracy in terms of voting and, and fair access to voting? We do. I mean, we need to do many things. We also do need to bridge build and find ways to depolarize and get back to a common set of facts and a common narrative. But I think part of how you do that is to make sure that elections are, fair and have integrity, uh, and that those people who support the fundamentals of democracy and the rule of law are winning those elections and able to exert um, democratic governance. The tech stuff is at such a scale that, yes, it's true, we've had propaganda and lies and gossip through human history, but we've never had anything at the scale that we have today. And the crazy thing about the Facebook revelations that came out a couple weeks ago with the whistleblower was not just that we know they're doing it. It's that we know they know how to not do it and they're still choosing to do it. And if you leave out politics for a second, they know that the algorithm done this way literally creates more teen suicides and done this way, fewer teen suicides, this body dysmorphia stuff. They know it. 
And they're like, no, we might lose a little bit of profit. And we are okay with more teenagers committing suicide um, than changing this part of the algorithm of the business model. They know it's literally fueled genocide and ethnic cleansing in Myanmar and other places. And in the U.S., they briefly um, had so much pressure during the election that they changed the algorithm to de-escalate rather than escalate. And it worked. We actually saw a change in those two months. And the day after the election, they went back to the other algorithm that essentially rewards extremism, rewards partisanship, rewards um, the most radical thing you can say. And of course, that leads, that doesn't just lead to January 6th overnight, but it's the environment within which January 6th happened. So, you know, Facebook has has a metric that's about, you know, metrics of engagement, which basically rewards the thing that is going to get you and me the most pissed off possible. The There's a secretary of technology, I forget what her name is, Aubrey Tang, I, what the name of the title is, Aubrey Tang in Taiwan, who at the beginning of COVID literally went in and started to hack the algorithms when it was open source, but showed that like COVID, the, the, the thing that was traveling the fastest in Taiwan, which this was before it had even hit the US, they were very close to the Wuhan district. And like the lies spread faster than the truth, right? As the old saying goes, and fear was going over constructive things. And she basically tweaked the algorithm. I don't know how she did it, but to reward anytime people were agreeing or anytime people were getting accurate information. And the response was seismically different, like tens of thousands of lives saved. People were driven naturally into problem solving spaces. Like, here's how we could create PPE together. Not like, here's who to blame. Or I heard this person died, you know, and their genitalia shrank or whatever else, you know, uh, can get passed around. Right. So in this situation, we can make choices in a democracy. And I think part of what we're going to have to do is not just look at fixing the the traditional problems with democracy. How easy is it to vote? Is that vote protected in terms of integrity? And not even just the 2.0 stuff, like participatory budgeting, which is great, other things, redistricting, but also this next level. How do we think about democracy in all aspects of our life? Democratization of the workplace, right? Workers have had so little power. And while it's freaking out Wall Street right now that workers actually have the power to not show up, you have to remember that if we had just kept the minimum wage consistent from the 50s, minimum wage would be about 28 or $29 an hour right now. So it's not surprising that people were never supposed to be working in these jobs for 12 bucks an hour, even 15 bucks an hour. It would be 28 or 29 just to have kept with inflation, right? But workers were so disempowered, the rules were so rigged against workers that people would be like, all right, screw it. I'm going to take eight bucks an hour here and I'm just going to work two jobs and then I'm never going to see my kids and I'm going to come home exhausted and I'm going to eat, you know, stale peanut butter out of a jar. So then you're suddenly like, wait a second, I have a little bit of power in the workplace. I'm going to start making the kind of rational decisions that anyone would make, which is not to work those hours for those wages. So democracy in the workplace, democracy online as well. And I think this is where we've, I, we have not effectively translated uh, very important 20th century norms that were mostly about the relationship between the individual and the state into things that are mostly about the norms about individuals, privacy, and corporate concentration and power. So in the old 20th century model, it is rightly a more civil libertarian uh, view often of like erring on the side of free speech. Now you can't say fire in a crowded theater. There are time, place, and manner restrictions, 
Um, we can debate the Skokie, Illinois case, but overall it was like, let the voices out there, right? Because we don't ever want to give the state the power to do that. But when we're talking about a, a private entity like Facebook and we're talking about the capacity for misinformation to crowd out and silence truth, we are actually talking about a different space and, and we don't even as a democracy have a good language or set of values and norms for how we think about that. But we need to be doing it because the other side, even under enormous brand and shareholder pressure to change, are saying we are willing to completely polarize society, not just the U.S. You see this in, in Poland. You see this in other places where Facebook's presence is directly linked to reducing the middle and the common ground and driving people to extremes and often violent extremes. So I think right now, yes, voting rights getting money out of politics or at least reducing it, you know, fair districts would be great. But I think this issue about, about media and information in the public square, now that the public square is a corporate platform monopoly, is going to be really one of the big questions we have going forward. Yeah. I want to get back to this question you were talking about, this breakthrough where we are now and and, and this this transformational moment we find ourselves in, not just on democracy, but on so many things. I mean, I feel like, you know, we all experience together, you know, during COVID, this idea that, you know, these longstanding inequities across so many of our systems were already there, but they just, this feels like the light was shown so bright on this uh, during COVID, whether it was broadband access or education or, you know, all from across the board on some of the things you're talking about, about, you know, empowerment. I know that you have, uh, in your current job, you've done a lot of really exciting and interesting things since you left Congress, but in your current job as executive director of Open Society US, you are really focused on marginalized communities and how to empower those communities. So before I, I know you've done some specific stuff I'd like to ask you about, just in general, general, you know, how are you thinking about this transformational moment? Obviously, the stuff we were talking about earlier with the Congress passing the American Rescue Plan funds, and then hopefully, uh, the Build Back Better agenda and an infrastructure bill, you know, this is going to be an infusion of cash to states and localities and across the country that we haven't seen in a long time. So on the government side, you're working on the philanthropy side, but on the government side, also, we're going to have this, um, hopefully this these means to make this transformation. So how are you thinking in your current role about the role that that open society plays? in kind of in making this transition and making a world, you know, this country better for so many people? You know, I'm, I'm so blessed to get to work for Open Society Foundation. I've been a grantee for many years for my work in West Africa and, and Afghanistan and some of my work here and various human rights issues. And it's an amazing foundation. And last year when the uprising happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder. It was uh, one of the first to make a set of, the first, I think, to make a set of five-year grants to Black-led, uh, Black accountable justice organizations. And frequently, philanthropy has either skipped these groups or considered them too controversial or said, you know, well, we'll give you a small program grant this year, some crumbs here and there. And I think giving organizations the capacity to dream, to experiment, including to fail on the path to success, and really just thinking about this from a power lens, like the goal is not to think just issue by issue, as we've often done in the past, juvenile justice here, education equity there, all important issues. But if the goal is for marginalized communities to not be marginalized anymore, how do you create or really just fuel the power being created from within such that those communities can speak for themselves and participate in our democracy from a position of, of empowerment? And I think that is, again, what we face right now in this historic breakthrough 
breakdown moment is whether or not we are going to let that happen. And it's very scary to people who are vested in the old status quo. We did put a lot into supporting the Biden agenda because we believe not only in the issues, climate change, ending child hunger and poverty, and many other things, having a, you know, a living wage for the many women of color who work in the care industry and starting to see that as an important part of the economy in the way manufacturing might have been two generations ago. But it's also that we believe a core part of democracy is the ability of a government to deliver for people and to deliver on a social contract across race, class, and region, as we said, and to then communicate that. In the absence of that feedback loop of a candidate running on a policy, a majority supporting that policy, that policy then becoming law, that law then producing the kind of benefits that were asked for by the people, then you've got to break down somewhere in the system. And I think we, you know, to President Biden's credit, uh, he put big ideas out there early. He didn't treat them as individual bills. He really saw that this was about really rebuilding an Ameri- a, a better American dream, American dream that was more inclusive than it ever was before. And, you know, really an American reality. And, you know, that is still something very special about this country, regardless of where you came from, where your, your family came from. And so some pieces of that will be cut off very painfully. Uh, we, we've lost already some of the immigration reform component that's so necessary for the tens of millions living in the shadows or with family members who are. We may get a narrower version of that. We may see something like a standing filibuster. All of those things are, are really, really important. And so we want to be focused on that. I think another thing for us at this moment, and here I have a little bit of perspective, despite all my privileges, is, you know, we have had to develop in the movement and advocacy side overdevelop our our muscles on speaking truth to power, on holding power accountable, because we didn't actually have enough progressive power. And that was particularly true for communities of color. And that meant tactics like impact litigation. In other words, trying to use the courts to win what you couldn't win through a legislative or executive branch. It means a lot of calling out the corruption of officials and other things. That's always going to be a bread and butter of a healthy civil society and a democracy. But actually, we have an opportunity now to see more communities go from speaking truth to power to taking power and holding power. And this idea of co-governing with people is very important because what you and I know is governing sucks. I mean, it is really hard. Running for office sucks. It's really hard. The people that don't think it sucks are probably the people that shouldn't be doing it. And, you know, for me, Congress was miserable, but Congress is a walk in the park compared to state legislature, right? And Congress, at least at the end, you get a six-figure salary and a 25-person staff. Plus, you can call up the Congressional Budget Office to get an estimate of what the bill is going to cost and other things. Like a lot of state legislatures, depending on the state, you're doing all that fundraising and all that door knocking, and then you're getting paid $20,000 a year, maybe, for what's called part-time work but your constituents sure as hell don't think it's part-time work. They expect you every time they see you in the grocery store or at the high school football game that you work for them and you have almost no staff. And in some cases you're running every two years like Congress. So these jobs, we need to really be thinking about how we make sure that the full demos 
can see themselves running for office or at least see people like them running for office. And if you make it so that, you know, how could a single mother possibly do this? One of my best friends from college is Katie Porter, and she's talked about this very uh, powerfully as being a single mom with three kids, and she's got to go fly across the country. I mean, it's crazy how much these systems are not built for anything other than people that are largely already rich or people that have already reached retirement age, um, neither of which represent most of America. So when we think about this, we've done some great work on the political side of our house, not the foundation side, helping reform prosecutors uh, run in cities. And that's changed the lives of tens of millions of people who are now living under more humane systems, systems that focus more on um, moving people into you know, alternate tracks and not just ma- uh, mass incarceration. But in many cases, those people, particularly when they're Black women, get elected and the system's trying to crush them. It's not trying to help them. The staff there work for the old guard. The police are not behind you. And then your civil society groups that helped that you came out of, you know, if you came out of movements, you came out of progressive work, they think their job is to make your life miserable by demanding 100% and then holding you accountable to whatever. And that is, in many ways, civil society jobs. But I think there are parts of this transition now as we see more progressives getting elected or appointed to all different levels of government to think about whether we've overdeveloped one muscle, we need that muscle to be strong, but have we done the time to develop other muscles that might be helpful? I keep using this muscle metaphor. I, I like, I like it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that, that are really important for, for, for governing. And I think if you look at a state like Arizona over the last 10 years that has flipped from red to blue, a lot of that started with the anti-RPAO organizing. It was super local incredible integrity, very inherently oppositional. And then you saw many of those movement leaders run for city council, run for state legislature. Then all of a sudden you're interacting with citizens in a different way. You're there to fill the pothole. You're there to make sure the school is open. You also may have a staff and a budget where you're helping, you're going to every Rotary Club and city and uh, Chamber of Commerce meeting as the city sitting council member, not as the person outside. Now, we're always going to need the people there, but I think we're at a moment now where we need to look and understand both how much power the progressive movement has built from 10 years ago, and this goes back to my vote on Obamacare. One of the biggest differences to today is there really wasn't much movement 10 years ago. There was move on, and there were the unions. And then there was the immigration groups, which have been getting it done for a long time, uh, or at least prophetically speaking up. But now, I mean, you have a black justice movement, you have, you know, Latinx and AAPI community, you have an economic inequality movement seen through the sort of Bernie and Warren kind of lenses. You have a bunch of people elected in the caucuses with huge platforms, very powerful platforms from an AOC to a, or Katie Porter to an Elizabeth Warren. Like these are, there's just power there that wasn't there 10 years ago. One of the things that means is people are going to be able to turn out voters if you vote for the right thing. But the other is, you're going to get primaried. I mean, cinema's primary numbers are are, are awful for a sitting uh, person. Now, she may have some other strategy in her head, maybe only in her head. But like you've got a situation where that energy, that base energy didn't exist. One of my theories on Virginia right now, which is just a theory, we'll see, is for my entire lifetime, the assumption was the Republican base shows up no matter what. They just turn their people out. But we have to give our people a reason to show up. We have to like light a fire or whatever. You need an Obama-type figure or an issue like Trump. I'm wondering now, after three or four years of 
voting in a row in Virginia where we have an election every year. Our side doesn't need to be as excited. They just know to vote. And their side, if they're not given the full Trump dopamine rush, they may just not show up. And if you give them the full Trump dopamine rush, it also gets our base excited and, of course, uh, gets swing voters coming our way and not theirs. So, I, you know, I'd love to get through that period to the point that we're having bigger conversations, including across ideological lines about how do we want, you know, information and technology to function in our democracy and in our community. Like, I, we cannot be hyperbolic enough about how much they are manipulating human behavior and the human mind, including the minds of children. It sounds crazy until you look at the algorithms and you realize it's just what, the, I mean, they're not even subtle about it. They're not even like, it's not, it's not a conspiracy. They literally are talking about wanting to create metaverses that are based on holding human attention span and shaping human behavior. And that's pretty screwed up. You know, and right now in the world, when I put my global hat on, we're really being offered. And, and Tristan Harris talks about this a lot, who was the guy in the social dilemma, um, that like we're really only seeing two models in response to this. We're getting the Chinese model, which is a repression model, it says, screw that. We are going to take state control over everything and block the Internet as you know it. And we're going to essentially build our own state based counterparts or this laissez faire chaos model of the sort of corporate concentration, Facebook can control everything, we can't regulate it, da, da, da. And if we don't come up with something in between these two models, I think we're going to get to the kind of scary place we probably are. And when you add in the acceleration of AI, that's going to happen much more quickly than we imagined. These are the kind of conversations we should be having as a community. Instead, we're having, you know, 10 hat conversations about critical race theory um, being taught in, you know, uh, middle school and high school when it's a graduate level concept and parents literally spending their often hours saying the most important thing in my life right now is to make sure my child is exposed to disease. Like I just want my child exposed to more disease, right? Like these are the things it, it's not even just like how, whether you believe in the mask stuff. It's like of all the things of all the things in the world you could be working on right now. Like you say you care about freedom can I just list a few things in the world that might be a more pressing question about, you know, impositions on freedom than, uh, than kids wearing a piece of cloth at the school. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, as I said, breakthrough or breakdown. Yeah, well, and I, I do want to just mention, I want to, I want to ask you about how you got you got here, actually, and, and, and you're so passionate about so much of this, and, and how you how you ended up in public service. But I do want to just acknowledge that, uh, that your organization, Open Society Foundation, US announced this recently, this $10 million uh, grants to Native American led organizations over the next five years, just as one more example of this kind of philanthropic opportunity to change uh, the, the destiny, really, of, of, of historically marginalized communities. So I want to thank you for that effort. And people should uh, go on your website, I assume, and look at that if that's uh, something that is of oh, interest sure, to sure. them. It's great stuff. And, you know, it's all about these groups over the last five or six years, I mean, they've been at it a lot longer, have really made the Native American voice a relevant political voice in the same way that the young kids uh, opposing Arpaio did years ago, who were no longer young kids, but were at the time. You see states like Montana and Alaska, where the indigenous vote can be the deciding factor, places like Arizona and Nevada, uh, but only if you get organized. 
And uh, if not, then anyone can come along and claim or co-opt or what have you. And these are difficult places to organize um, and talk about groups that have every reason to be cynical about responsiveness of, of this government. It's certainly Native communities. So to see these groups do the kick-ass work that they've been doing uh, over the last few years, it was really cool to be able to give, I think, in every, every case, the first five-year grant. And having been in the nonprofit world for most of my professional life, Sadly, we have these amazing organizers, they become executive directors, and then they spend 70% of their time fundraising and 30, you know, 25% of their time on internal HR issues, and then 5%, you know, driving the agenda forward. So I just really appreciate the, the work those leaders are doing in their teams to, um, to build that uh, political voice in the in various Native uh, American communities here in the U.S. Yeah. And speaking of political voices, so did you tell me just briefly, I mean, how did you get into this? How did you, in particular, running for office, you know, this is an honorable profession. Our, our podcast talks about politics being an honorable profession. Although, it, you know, as we're talking about today, this, that's not the only way to serve. We're talking about organizing. We're talking about making change in your community, whether or not you're in elected office. But for you, yours, yours did include a stint in elected office. Is that something you always thought you wanted to do? Or how did you find yourself running for office? No, no, no. So I grew up in a Catholic church that basically said, if I was not trying to end torture and extreme poverty, I would rot in hell forever. And so I basically, I joke that I came for the guilt and stayed for the joy. <laughs> I, uh, it's very strange because Charlottesville was not a particularly liberal community at the time, but it ends up there was the, the most um, progressive bishop in the country, mm. uh, O'Sullivan, was based in Richmond. So all of the progressive priests moved into this diocese in order to escape the purging of the more liberationist priests during that era. So we would bounce from church to church, and they were all talking about, you know, the dirty wars in Central America, and they were talking about the need for nuclear disarmament. I just thought that was Catholicism. Needless to say, it's been a more complicated relationship since. But uh, that was one defining factor for me. The second was growing up a white guy in the South where the experience of massive resistance to integration was a lived experience. People were still telling that oral history who had lived through it not long ago in Charlottesville and Farmville, where one of the cases that became Brown versus Board, again, where faith was a huge aspect of the leadership of that movement. And then went and was starting college right about the time Bill Clinton was elected, who I generally thought was very, very disappointing in the sense of someone I knew was smarter than I would ever be and more politically skilled than I would ever be, but continually missed the opportunity of the 90s to be a transformative leader by seeming to care always about what was going to get him to the next election or the next polling result. And when we go back and think about what that period was like, it probably was one of the greatest it's not that it, yeah, he was a bad president per se, he accomplished many things, but there's probably no president who's had a greater opportunity in terms of the economy he had, the totally unipolarity of the world at that point. It was that period between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the towers and his just natural abilities that are, that are off the chart. And so I made a decision in college that I was going to never plan more than two years ahead because I saw that very talented people who could do good for the world were so decide, so clear on where they wanted to be in 20 years that they didn't do what they needed to do right then. And that I would test a different theory of change every two years of my life. Hmm. 
and I've actually stuck with that. Uh, you know, I've been a peace negotiator. I've done uh, transitional justice and conflict analysis. I've done racial justice organizing and advocacy. I've worked at a, a, a you know war crimes tribunal, run for office, been a diplomat, a teacher, and now I get to give someone else's money away for a living, which is not one I expected on the list, but is pretty powerful, uncomfortably so. But the running for office one was one that I I was I think in that mindset. Well, I went through a brief period in middle school where I really loved politicians and I helped, uh, I knocked doors on the Doug Wilder campaign, uh, you know, and that was the first time, a, you know, black man was elected governor in America and it happened in the capital of the Confederacy. What can't we do, you know, uh, kind of thing. But I felt like, you know, I used to say movements um, change the sense of what's possible or what, what I used to say, but, you know, activists make a difference and politicians show up to cut the ribbon and then changed over time to saying, no, that's not true. Movement's jobs are to change our sense of what's possible and politicians have to work within the sense of what's possible. And the best moments in American history are where you have a movement leader or movement leaders like King and Bayard Rustin and everyone that was there at the peak with a politician like LBJ that was willing to go to the limits of what was possible politically. And when each of those are pushing the limits, that's when history really changes. And I think that for me, one of the reasons I ran for off, there were a couple of reasons that I decided to run in 08. One was I kept going to the Hill to brief people. Like I'd come back from Afghanistan, I'd come back from Darfur, and I would still always be going up to these folks on the Hill who didn't seem to care enough about like the issues. They'd care about like, oh, is this going to help us score points against the other party or what have you? And the second was, I was frankly sick and tired of voting for Democrats because they were the least good option. And my home district was represented by a sort of pre-Tea Party racial demagogue named Virgil Dude, who was the one who said that Keith Ellison shouldn't be allowed to swear, be sworn in on a Quran. And um, he, and no one had come within 20 points of him. And it was a district the size of New Jersey, still is, that represented kind of all of America, like the top of the district, the northern part is a, essentially a mid-Atlantic state. It's around the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, deep blue with some suburbs. Then you go through the Bible Belt, literally Liberty University and Falwell's territory, and then into Southside, which was like the Rust Belt, which is the old manufacturing and tobacco belt of Virginia that had lost a lot of the jobs in the NAFTA era of the 90s. So here was a chance to go and test what I ca called and wrote about as conviction politics, that the way to win more voters was not to go to some artificial center, but to go to our deepest convictions. And that by going and championing those values and doing so boldly and with courage, uh, we would actually win over more people. So I went out and with that theory and polled and I was 36 points behind in the polls. So we had some work to do. We cleared the primary field. And, you know, after a year of very grassroots heavy work, uh, we had barely close the needle, but um, a lot of things fell into place. Obama lost my district when I won it, which I love to remind him of, but he did massively overperform uh, previous Democrats, and we were not creating any distance with him, uh, despite what some consultants wanted to do. So we were able to hold that vote and win a certain set of voters that were sort of Mark Warner voters, but not Obama voters, maybe about race, maybe not in that case. Certainly two years later, that was a bigger factor indeed. So I was excited to test that theory in terms of a, of a campaign, which we, you know, we won the closest race in the country on a recount. 
that really was a defy the odds, kind of a perfect race and a perfect storm of things. And then it was like, I didn't want to just be in office. That was like, who wants that? You know, like to be still be in Congress 10 years later. Right. So the idea was like, what do we want to show here? And the idea was to show conviction politics that you could go up, you could vote your conscience, even in a deep red district and, you know, succeed. And statistically, we succeeded. uh, But in a binary sense, we didn't. In that, you know, I felt like we could overperform the Democratic brand by five or six points. So depending on where Obama was, like we would win or lose. Of course, Obama was at a, a low point, and but but we overperformed by twice as much as I thought we could. We overperformed by twelve points. We were in the seven. You know, we had five separate Tea Parties in my district. I got many death threats. Uh, they tried to blow up my brother's house because they couldn't even get my address right. It's a whole bunch of stuff. It was a it was a time that's worth going back to when we think it's just about Trump and what it was that were the factors that drove that. For me, the idea of taking the tough votes was a little silly because you know I had been living in Sierra Leone a couple of years earlier where risk meant like you might get beheaded women who were willing to stand in front of warlords in order to protect their community. And for me, I was like, wait, the worst thing that happens is I'm a former member of Congress. That seems like a pretty good deal. And, you know, being a former member of Congress is a much better job. And I've been able to do things like go back to negotiating peace deals and doing diplomacy and doing conflict analysis work. And again, in Afghanistan and some during Arab Spring and working on you know, racial justice uh, issues and climate issues. And it's just, I've just been so blessed to continue to do that work since. But I will say for all the problems of politics, it is a noble profession and it can be a noble profession. And one of the things that I like about it relative to activism and advocacy where I've spent more time is the accountability mechanism is very clear. In elections, you need to have a majority of people supporting you. There's a whole issue in activism right now about people claiming to speak for communities, but not having done the work to actually necessarily have those communities share the same positions that they're promoting. Now, there's a lot of misinformation about that, too. But the fact is, when you're running a campaign, you win or you lose. And your metric for that is very clear. Did a majority of the voters support me? Now, it's not the only metric. I think in 2010, I felt like we won by losing. First and foremost, I think we stayed true to our principles. There's certainly a couple of votes I regret. Um, but overall, on the really core moments, we made tough votes, the right votes. We had respect of people and respected the democratic process. I respected losing. We had a lot of people who said, you know, you work hard, you have integrity, but I simply don't want the Democrats to be in charge of the House, which goes back in part to why I think it's dumb for these House Democrats to be distancing themselves from Biden. The only option voters have next year is whether to send Biden a message of Democrats controlling the House or not. So in the old days, people might say, look, I don't, you know, I'm not crazy about Democrats and Nancy Pelosi, but my congressman delivers for me. He's a good guy. He gets me. Voters are smarter than that. That may sound like a smart thing for a voter to say, but ultimately in 2010, For most people's lives in my district, it mattered less whether it was Robert Hurt or me than whether it was Nancy Pelosi or John Boehner. And if you fundamentally didn't like the direction Democrats were going, the best, the only way you could really affect that was to send me home and to send Robert Hurt up, even if, as I think many voters did think, Tom is actually going to represent our district better in terms of like nothing against Robert, but like we, we 
killed it on constituent services. We were, I mean, I, I worked 20 hours a day, like literally 20 hours a day, seven days a week. We went to every corner of that district every day. We brought in over $300 million of investments. We were helping to create an entire green economy in Southside. We'd help bring broadband to a bunch of areas. Like even my haters were like, never seen anyone work that hard, but they were like, but ultimately like we don't actually support the direction the house is going. So I think we got to give voters credit for being smart. And I think that's one nice thing about politics is you actually have to go out and talk to people and not have a hypothetical argument with your friends about this phrase or that phrase, but you got to go sit down with people and, and hear them out. There's a lot of bad parts about politics, but I think there's something really honorable about the idea of representing people. And I'll say, I mean, I've worked in a lot of marginalized communities here and overseas but I've never felt as rooted in those communities as ironically as I did when I was in Congress mm. because I was talking to people every day and they were not just talking to me as like random dude, whatever. It was like, you work for me. <laughs> like you work for me and you represent me and you are going to sit down and you are going to listen for as long as I need to talk to you about my life story, both negative ways, but also in the way of like this, you're my only hope. Like, you know, the, the best compliment I had in those days was being called the mayor of the fifth district because we just like we are the, the smallest unit of federal government representation is the house. So that's like the, the most local a person has as a representative in the federal government. It's an amazing experience. Hmm, I love it. Well, I really love your concept of this, you know, politics of conviction. And I, I very much hope that we are in one of those moments right now you were talking about where the activism and the activists are going to meet the politicians uh, so that we can really make some transformational change. And just thank you for spending some time with us today. And it was great to hear about what you're doing. And um, I'm, I'm really excited about where we're going as a country. If, uh, if we can do some of the things you're talking about. Great stuff. And I know you had Jason Kander on recently, and I want to give him props. We've worked together some on these Afghanistan evacuations. He's been tireless uh, on that and um, just really appreciate what he's he's done for folks in Afghanistan. We love Jason. New Deal, New Deal alumni. We love him. Thank you so much, Congressman. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.